0: Let us pray together. Father, as we come before you to study your word, we tread on holy ground this morning to recall the death of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with reverence and awe as we come before you, Lord, to gaze once again at Christ hanging on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, let your Holy Spirit be present, Lord, and turn our hearts and our attention to you once again. Come and touch us, Lord. Deeply we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning to Mark chapter 15. We won't be preaching the whole passage that was read. We'll be doing uh, verse 33 to 39. I'll read it again before we start. At noon, darkness covered the whole land until three in in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. We tread indeed on holy ground this morning as we come to remember our Savior hanging on the cross. And I would argue that as we listen to this passage, we come to the axis point around which all history rotates. And as we approach this asymptotic point, which is simultaneously both the highest and the lowest point in all of history, let us come with reverence and awe before our God. Generally, I find that preaching about the cross, it is easier to approach the cross from one of the teaching passages in the Bible, from one of the epistles, like in Romans or in Ephesians. But now I would like us to take some time to approach some passages which maybe we have an assumed level of familiarity with. It is surprising to me that there is generally an infrequency that these passages are preached directly from. And I would like to take the time this morning for us to gaze once again on Christ our Savior on the cross We indeed were blessed a few months ago when our pastor went through the crossword series and we looked at several words which form a lens through which we can look at the work of Christ on the cross. Christ being the wisdom of God, his substitution for us, his sacrifice, reconciliation, Christ's forsakenness, justification and other words. Paul, in response to various people in the church of Corinth, moving beyond the gospel and moving to other sorts of wisdom, chastised them and said that he resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Martin Luther, in his Theology of the Cross, he says that in the cross, God seems to be all that we never imagined him to be. So let us see our God this morning, in and through this moment which he has revealed himself. Arguably, I would like to say that the cross is perhaps the place where we see the totality of God's character fully revealed. And we'll come to that later on in the message. This message may seem, for those of you who are a little more pragmatic, to not have some do's and don'ts. However, from this sermon, I hope that you will have the chance to behold your God once again. As we approach this passage in a moment... Also, listen to this passage as being intertwined with your history, too, for our culpability is mixed in with this passage here. We are personally implicated in this story. Over the past months, it took quite a while, I was uh, listening to the audio book of the Count of Monte Cristo. The Count of Monte Cristo was unfairly imprisoned for, as being a political dissident, and he was stuck in prison and forgotten about for 14 years. He rotted away there. In that prison, he vowed to, f- to have vengeance on his enemies if he ever got out. Years later, he started exacting his revenge. And then he took some time to revisit the dungeon because he started to have doubts as to whether he was right in meting out his revenge on his enemies. And as he entered the dungeon again, he behold the suffering that he had partaken of for 14 years. In the same way I would like us today, maybe not in the way to exact revenge, but to remember that place where we were taken when when the gospel was presented to us. To see those contours again, to see the place where Christ hangs crucified. That we would remember again that which drew us to him. Let us enter our passage. And so our context this morning is we really come at verse 33 to the halfway point through Jesus' torturous ordeal on the cross. By now, he has been awake all night, exhausted, having endured six, five or six, depending on how you read it, phony trials. He's been mocked, beaten, spat, spat upon. He's been judged. He's been scourged and weakened to the point of death, and finally he has been crucified. As we enter this passage, we see that Mark's intent in presenting this passage has been both to serve as a historical narrative of what happened and also to form a basis for Christian discipleship, and some uh, pastors have referred to Mark as being a type of a gospel tract which has been written for Gentiles. Additionally, in Mark chapter 8, 9 and 10, we repeatedly see the contrast of Jesus being both the Son of God, yet the Son of God who must suffer. Christ has been crucified nine, uh, sorry, three hours prior to the point at which we arrive in this sermon. And during these three hours, he is endured jeering by the by- bystanders, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, the thieves. He has prayed that the Father would forgive them. And in in all likelihood, in response to seeing this, one of the thieves repents and asks Jesus to forgive him. Jesus, even in the midst of his agony, makes provision for the care of his mother by assigning her to the care of the Apostle John. And three hours have passed. And here at noon, darkness covers the whole land. So at verse 33, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This darkness is to be interpreted in perhaps a number of different ways, but certainly it is to be interpreted as the judgment of God falling. After having hung there for three hours, enduring ridicule and shame, darkness covers the land. The judicial frown of God turns on the sun, and he bears our sin and our shame. The blast of the fury of God's wrath rains down on the sun. He who would eventually be our shield from all wrath divine. Also see in the darkness, alluded to in the hymn that we just sang, the salute of creation. This supernatural event highlights the significance of what happened. Darkness perhaps which had not been seen since the plagues of Egypt. One of the hymns that we sing says, Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. The song that we just sang, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty Savior, uh, maker died for man the, the creature's sin. The revolt of creation as its creator suffers and dies. Here he is the one who hangs there, who by himself holds all things together by his powerful word. Also see in the darkness the indi- indignation of the father. The report of the text is very silent, actually. These three hours is passed over in one sentence. It seems to suggest that silence and darkness covered the land. As one preacher has has, um, guided, here's possibly an indication of the father throwing darkness over the son, showing both indignation and his displeasure that man would treat his son in such a way and also shielding the Son's dignity as he bears the torture of body and soul that was made for our redemption. Let us dwell for a moment in this darkness and consider the torture of soul that our Savior bore for us. Let us not undermine the physical torture that our Savior endured. So many sermons have focused to this almost to exclusion but let us consider the darkness pointing through the immense torture of soul that our savior bore for us Here was the light of the world plunged into darkness enduring darkness for us that we might be brought into his wonderful light verse 34 And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the Spirit's work here, we have Jesus' words maintained in the original Aramaic. Perhaps that the church, through down the corridors of history, would hear the words that the Savior actually called out as he hung on the cross having endured a further three hours of torture. At three in the afternoon this happened. I want you to consider that usually the more severe some suffering or anguish is, the slower time seems to pass. And while it might not seem to be chronologically precise, consider that the infinite nature of his suffering made these three hours endure like an eternity wonder that Christ, having endured so much, was able to cry out with a loud voice at all. One can only imagine physical pain so severe that you cannot even raise your voice, an anguish of spirit that your voice cannot even emit any noise. Consider, too, perhaps the depth of suffering that we will never fully comprehend. I feel that our appreciation for the depth of suffering will only be augmented through all of history. As we are there 10,000 years beholding and appreciating even more deeply the greatness of our God, we will only at the same time comprehend how low he went in condescending for us. Consider, too, the unity of the Godhead. Here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The unity of the Godhead, something happening, whether it was broken, we don't know. There's a depth of mystery that we cannot plunge fully. Yet, the unity of the Godhead, suffering something that the Son of God would be forsaken for our salvation. As in eternity we'll never fully comprehend the greatness of God, so too will our wonder and awe at the depth of what was experienced on the cross in this particular moment be augmented. Consider too the suffering of the Godhead. Jesus, who is referred to in John chapter 1 as being in the closest fellowship with the Father and in older translations saying he was in the bosom of the Father, cast out that we might enter in. There's a song that we sing which says, I'm accepted because you were forsaken. Consider too, I remember my father bringing attention to this. Consider the father's suffering. If David wept over his wayward son Absalom, think of the father, not of the wayward son, but of the faithful son, obedient to the point of death. Imagine, too, how the courts of heaven must have echoed with the Father's voice, Jesus, my son, my son. The suffering of the Father as he witnesses the ignominy of the Son. Imagine the anguish of soul endured by Abraham as he ascended Mount Moriah with Isaac, the son he loved, each step coming closer to the altar where the son would be sacrificed. Imagine then the anguish of the father as he hears these words from his beloved son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his obligation to turn his back to render effective salvation for all of us. Now this is perhaps theological speculation, but hopefully it serves its purpose. Consider too the Holy Spirit who has poetically been described as the personified love bond between the father and the son, how his heart must have been rent to see the son call out in desolation of his forsakenness and to see the father turn his back on the son. Consider, too, that perhaps did not the very faithfulness of God hang in the balance in this moment? Is all lost Did the covenants hang in the balance? Where is the offspring that would crush the head of the serpent? Where is the one who would be the blessing to all the nations? Where is the king who would sit on the throne of David? One theologian has said here in this moment, perhaps we see God. We need to be reverent as we say this. Coming to the cusp of the cessation of his being to keep his covenants, to be faithful with the rending of the Godhead pointed to here. Too often the cost of the crucifixion has focused on the physical suffering, which was indeed immense. However, it is surprising how little attention the gospel writers actually take to describe the crucifixion. This is perhaps because its horror was understood by the first readers of the gospel. As God has revealed to you his greatness and his power, thus meditate this profound depth to which love would drive the Godhead. Let us meditate on the depth of this transaction, that we will not trivialize the cost of our salvation, the magnitude of the love, the faithfulness of our God. See here and let us tremble when we hear these words, when we see the consequence of the justice of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet handle this forsakenness wisely, knowing about the ministry of reconciliation, which is talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, that here that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Let us therefore accept God's revelation of himself, the self-substituting God, a God who is faithful even at inconceivable cost consider our salvation that is costly to an all-powerful immense and infinite God imagine too God who may seem even unrecognizable by our understanding of God one passage in Isaiah 52 says he was marred beyond the semblance of even being a man Yet at the cross we see perhaps most vividly God on display. God's wisdom, his power, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his patience, his love, his grace, his long-suffering, his faithfulness, his power, his sovereignty, the obedience of Christ, the humility of Christ. Here we come to the most profound moment in history. Hence, due to its profundity, let us dwell here and hear the cry of desolation and let it ring in our ears. Perceive the dreadful weight of God's wrath of sin that commands such a mission and such a cost necessitating Jesus, himself eternally one with the Father, to be forsaken. If we would grasp by the Spirit's help the magnitude of this, we would grasp how much deeper the suffering of Jesus was than the physical suffering. As one hymn writer wrote, Come and weep, come and mourn for your sins that pierced him there, so much deeper than the wounds of thorn and nail. All our pride, all our grief, all our fallenness and shame, and the Lord has laid the punishment on him. See the sin that pierced him there, so much deeper than the wounds of thorn and nail. Consider this too. If Christ's soul was crushed to the point of death, at Gethsemane should not the cross and the scourging and the torture serve as an analog through which we look through the physical suffering of Christ to the tortured soul of our spotless savior and consider him bearing all of this and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Note too that this cry of desolation is addressed to God. And yet, as some commentators have commented, here we see Jesus calling out to God as his God, not his Father, something that he had characteristically been known for referring to God as. Yet there is no answer. Silence is endured by Christ, that the forsakenness would be borne by him alone. Be reassured that the one who alone has eternally been utterly forsaken is the one who promises to never leave you or forsake you. It is precisely by the silence of God that we achieve the greatest answer in all of history, the eternal salvation of the church, whilst they were all yet sinners. It is the silence that God gives to Christ that enables him to welcome with open arms all that would come to him in faith. Praise God verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he is calling Elijah. This most profound moment of history is passing, yet it is misunderstood. This may not have been done maliciously, but it seems to have been picked up and perhaps turned to a malicious end. All of this done All of this was being done for the benefit of humanity, and it is finally being misinterpreted. Sometimes as parents, when you make sacrifices for your children, you're able to do it, but you want them to notice that you're making the sacrifice, right? Here, Christ is making such an immense sacrifice for all of humanity, and it is being misinterpreted and ignored. Verse 36, Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Even though, So firstly, I would like to point out from here is that even though this may seem merciful, any quenching of thirst only serves to prolong the suffering of the person on the cross. And if you look at Mark's, uh, Mark's uh, account here and you compare it with that of Matthew, Mark here says that it was an individual person saying it, and Matthew says that it was a a group of people saying this thing. No, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. The sense which which, uh, some commentators have taken in this is that one person says it, and then the the rest of them join in with this in a jeering sense. Come on, yeah, let's see. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to finally take him down. The jeering crowd... Let God save him. It it echoes what has already been the types of jeers that have been hurled at Christ. Let God save him if he delights in him, if he is indeed God's Messiah. Let's see if anything actually happens. He saved others. Let him save himself. Let him come down from the cross if he is indeed the king of Israel, king of the Jews. It's as if to say, ah, will he finally be vindicated by anything actually happening? If you wanted to translate this into today's what it would have happened today this would have been someone pulling out their cell phone taking a picture of Jesus saying let's see if Elijah comes and posting it on the internet. This helps you to grasp the jeering that was held on Christ. John Calvin says this certainly was more cruel than any other torture That they upbraided and reviled and tormented him as one being cast off and forsaken by God. He's enduring all of this and yet they heap um, insults on him, saying that he's been cast off and forsaken by God. There's one song that says, the humble king, they named him a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. Verse 37 With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. By this point, we see from the seven words mentioned on the cross that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the the central one of the seven. By this point, he, he says, he has said, I thirst. If you read the other gospel accounts, he now has said, it is finished, paid in full. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. I don't want to dwell on those ones. Those ones have been expanded, by, um, particularly paid in full in other sermons. Here I want to, to, to spend some time noticing one thing. In John chapter 10, verse 18, the, Jesus says of himself, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Here, I think, as we look at these words of Mark, we can see the authority of the son laying down his life once his work has been finished. See his authority that lays down his life and stand in awe of your God who will endure all the way to the end. It is certainly not what seemed to be the case for crucifixion, if it was anything, was the torturing domination of the executioner where the will of the criminal was absolutely crushed he had no will of his own. He had to just hang there either until his legs were broken and he suffocated and died. Or he had to hang there until his body completely rent of all energies passes away. Yet I think here we see a glimpse of the volition of Christ who endured all the way to the ends. And once having paid the price for all our sins, having endured The depths of hell for us lays down his life of his own accord. Let us learn from it to confirm our faith by considering that the Son of God determined to remain nailed to the cross for the sake of our salvation until he had endured most cruel torments of flesh and dreadful anguish of soul and even death itself, says John Calvin. Verse 38. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. I think here we see a clue to unanimous authorial intent from both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who intentionally insert this point right into the middle of the narrative. You will know that the most holy place, the holy of holies, was separated from the uh, uh, the outer holy place by a curtain, and the high priest would only be permitted to enter this place once a year to make atonement for the people's sin. This place, the most holy place, has been opened right, and the gospel writers are intent, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to link this directly to the moment which Christ expires. See then that we have a hope as an anchor for our soul, which is firm and secure. It has entered into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And later on in the book of Hebrews, it says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So I would say glimpse into the cosmic reality of what is actually happening on the cross in these moments. Christ, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, is entering a perfect heavenly tabernacle, entering and making propitiation for our sins, offering up, entering the most holy place Of this perfect tabernacle by means of his own blood and offering this, making this offering for our eternal redemption. Who would have guessed, this man, numbered as one of the criminals, hanging there, seemingly helpless, that this most holy of events was occurring? Isaiah 52 says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many, woe, many, many to, who would be appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Who would have guessed that this most holy event was taking place? For certainly had we been there, we would have considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. Yet a thief condemned to the same punishment seemed to catch a glimpse of who this man was, disfigured beyond the likeness of of even being a human, and asked him to remember him. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. See the soldiers and remember their treatment of Christ our Savior. Either hear them saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. How they beat him on his head again and again, how they spat on him blindfolded him and beat him, telling them to prophesy on who was the person who struck him. One commentator comments on how, after having been scourged, he brought attention to the fact that they ripped the clothes off his back, reopening all the scars and the bleeding, the mocking, fake homage that was paid to Christ. If we look at Matthew's Gospel, it tells us that when... He, the Roman centurion, saw the earthquake and all that happened. And it mentions the rock splitting. They, so it would have been a group of these Roman soldiers, I doubt all of them were centurions, explained, exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Here in Mark's gospel, he seems to have a slightly different focus. He seems to want to highlight the fact that it was a centurion. Seeing how Jesus died, I would like to to point to the fact that this was a centurion seeing the authority to which he was able to lay down his life. And we get a glimpse of that because when the centurion went back to Pilate, Pilate is surprised that Christ has died already. In fact, we see in Luke's gospel the same thing happened. And actually here it says that the centurion praised God saying, surely this man was a righteous man. The most unlikely people respond in this passage. For the disciples, all except for John, have fled. Here we see the work of the Spirit, taking a soldier who has started to ascend the ranks, who is able to discern the righteousness of Christ. A thief who was there in the jaws of death, right at the gates of hell, being able to perceive who Christ is. Truly, he was a righteous man, the Son of God. And here we see this Gentile soldier serving as a herald of Christ's death. Surely these words should have come from the Apostle Peter. This man, this man is truly the Son of God standing at the side of the cross. But no, it comes from a Gentile soldier. Surely this man was the Son of God, fully God and fully man. Fully God, the Son of God, that he may bear the weight of sin and its judgment exhausting our eternal punishment and then having completed the task to lay down his life and there the father has one of the rays of truth pierced through the darkness and shame of what has happened on the cross with the confession of this Roman centurion surely, truly this man is the son of God so as we come to conclusion this morning after having spent some time considering our Savior on the cross, let us consider again the one and wonder at the love that God has for us whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wonder at a salvation that is costly to an infinite and all-powerful God. Meditate on this, that the Holy Spirit will call us once again to rest at the feet of Christ to see him our crucified saviour, that we would live in holiness and righteousness. John Calvin writes in his commentary, for if we are desirous to profit aright by meditating on the death of Christ, we ought to begin with cherishing abhorrence of our sin in proportion to the severity of the punishment which he endured. This will cause us not only to feel displeasure and shame of ourselves, but to be but that we would be penetrated with deep grief and therefore to seek the medicine with becoming ardor and at the same time to experience confusion and trembling. For we must have hearts harder than than stones if we are not cut to the quick by the wounds of the Son of God, if we do not hate and detest our sins for expiating which the Son of God endured so much torments. Also be comforted, he continues, but as this is a display of the dreadful vengeance of God, so on the other hand it holds out to us the most abundant grounds of confidence. For we have no reason to fear that our sin for which the Son of God, from which the Son of God acquits us by such a valuable ransom will ever be brought into judgment before God. Therefore be strengthened, For this coming week, let us throw off every weight that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you are growing weary and losing heart, consider Christ our Savior. Keep the image of the slain Christ in your mind's eye and simultaneously hear the heavenly refrains. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be, a kingdom, uh, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and, they will, reign, and he, they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Truly this man was the Son of God. Let us pray together. Father, as we have taken some moments to consider our Savior, at the turning point of history, Lord, hanging on the cross, bearing all our sin and our shame, experiencing a depth of suffering which we can't even imagine, we come before you to say we are astounded at such grace. Fill our hearts with wonder at the love that would bear such a cost for our salvation. Fill our hearts with feelings of commitment, Lord, that we would commit and pledge our lives to you once again. Fill our hearts with comfort, Lord, knowing that if Christ has acquitted us in such a way, we can confidently come before the judgment throne of God. And turn our eyes, Lord, to heaven, the heavenly places, Lord, where Christ, our Savior, is exalted, the Lamb of God, who was slain. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hear fitting words to end this service. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.